Our scripture reading is from John chapter 21, verses 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you want, wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to, he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is that, it, who is that is going to, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So he, the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, but yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that this his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. Good morning. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Uh, happy Mother's Day to uh, all the moms out there. Um, and it's great to see again everyone uh, out here who was able to join us for this outdoor service. Uh, help those of you who are on Zoom uh, will be able to join us out here as well. And I do want you to know that um, the, uh, we are in discussion to think about uh, how and when we can move back indoors. Um, so uh, we'll keep you posted uh, as those discussions uh, become more clear. Please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful uh, this day uh, for our mothers, for giving us birth. We're also mindful that Mother's Day can elicit a variety, a mixture of emotions. Some are excited and anxious as they're about to give birth, and others are in sad and in grief having lost their mother, or a child, or a child that is not to be, whether it's guilt or disappointment felt by those who feel that they have somehow failed as mothers in some way, or that their own mothers have somehow failed them. And so God, we would lift up all mothers, grandmothers, widows, stepmothers, surrogates, single mothers, first-time moms, fifth-time moms, 
And we offer thanksgiving for all who have mothered us in our faith. And now help us in the hearing of your word to find encouragement, to hear more clearly your call for our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. This is now the sixth Sunday of Eastertide, and we have been considering the many different encounters that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. So far, we've heard about Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see the risen Christ, and who was the first to testify, I have seen the Lord. We've also heard about Mary and Cleopas, who declared that he has risen indeed. And we heard about Thomas, who proclaimed, my Lord and my God. And last week, the beloved disciple recognized Jesus grilling fish on the beach and pointed him out to Peter saying, it is the Lord. And so today we want to consider the rest of that event and the conversation that Jesus has with Peter following that breakfast. I know that most of you are quite familiar with the story of Peter. He's one of the more colorful characters in the Bible. But this morning, I want to review his story by considering the journey that he has taken just in the Gospel of John and what led him to this conversation with Jesus. While we can never know Peter or anyone fully, I think these several vignettes of his story in the stories that he's featured will give us a good sketch of his personality, his temperament, and to help us better understand this after breakfast conversation better. Now, Peter was first introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptizer, and when he met Jesus, he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the first thing that he did was to tell his brother Peter all about him. And at that first meeting, we are told that Jesus nicknames Peter, Peter. His name was Simon, but Jesus says, I'm going to call you Cephas, which means rock, Petra, Peter. Peter doesn't say anything in response. We don't know if he liked that nickname or what he thought about Jesus in that first meeting. But he was impressed enough, apparently, to stick around and to become one of his followers. And so he, with the others, got to see Jesus as he preached, as he healed, as he cast out demons, as he fed the thousands, as he went about doing his ministry. Now, the first words that Peter speaks in the Gospel of John is after the feeding of the 5,000. After that miraculous meal, Jesus told the crowds that were following him that he is the bread of life, that he is the bread of heaven that has come down. Those words were quite controversial. But then Jesus said this, that those who follow him must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which basically turned everyone off. At that point, he was really, really popular. He had tens of thousands of people following him, and they even wanted to make him king. But after those words, nearly everyone abandoned him. And so Jesus even asked his 12 closest disciples whether they too 
wanted to leave him. And Peter speaks up as the leader on behalf of the twelve, and he makes this profession of faith. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's an incredible declaration of faith. And Peter seems to have a firm grasp of who Jesus is. But he doesn't. The next time Peter speaks up is when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Peter questions Jesus' actions. And in no uncertain terms, he tells him, Never, never shall you wash my feet. But when Jesus explains to him, If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part with me. Peter does a 180 and he goes to the other extreme and ridiculously adds, Lord, then not just my feet, but also my hands and my head, like give me a full bath. Then, a little bit later, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples that he will not be with them much longer and that he has to go away. And Peter asks Jesus where he is going and why he cannot come with him. And in fact, when he's told that he cannot come, Peter insists with the greatest of self-assurance, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. I will follow you wherever you go. He is so confident of his commitment and of his courage. And to this Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow twice until you deny me three times. After that, when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, as if to prove his point, Peter is ready to fight and pulls out a sword. It's actually quite comical because Peter is not a swordsman. He's a fisherman. And it's doubtful he's ever held a sword. It's like he's just putting on a show of being tough. It's like a kid grabbing a toy sword, pretending to fight. I mean, there were professional Roman soldiers there to arrest Jesus. And Peter doesn't go after any of them. Instead, he goes after one of the high priest's slave, someone who's probably unarmed and maybe just a kid. And still, all he manages to do is to cut off his ear. The Roman soldiers were probably laughing at him. Seriously, dude, this is what you're going to do? And Jesus says, hey, just stop it. Just stop it. After that, Jesus is led away. And Peter follows him at a safe distance to watch the sham trial. It's a cold night, and he warms himself with the others by a charcoal fire. And it's during that time that he's accused of being, having been with Jesus. And he vehemently denies that three times, just as Jesus had foretold. And immediately, the cock crowed. We can imagine how devastating that must have been for Peter. He had claimed that he was willing to die for Jesus, 
had pulled out a sword and showed off as if he was willing to die in battle. But when confronted to simply admit that he knew Jesus, he denied it. Not just once in a moment of temporary weakness, but deliberately three times. And when Jesus is crucified and is died and is buried, like the other disciples, he is nowhere to be found. Then on Easter morning, when Mary tells him and the other disciples whom Jesus loved that the tombstone had been moved, they sprint back to the tomb with her and Peter enters the tomb first to see what's going on and he sees the linen wrappings in which Jesus had been buried in and the face cloth separately rolled to the side. The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, sees this and he comes to believe. We are not told, however, that Peter believed or what he thought, only that along with the other disciples, he did not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. Now, presumably later that day, Peter is with the other disciples hiding behind locked doors with the other disciples when Jesus appears. And again, eight days later, when Jesus appears again to invite Thomas to check out his wounds, we assume that Peter was there as well. But he's silent throughout these resurrection appearances. And finally, last week, we heard how Peter is back in Galilee and he's fishing with six of his friends. And after that miraculous catch of fish, the disciples shared a silent breakfast with Jesus. And that brings us to today's conversation. The picture that emerges that, that, emerges, that, I, hope you've, that I hope you've heard is that Peter is the accepted leader among this band of disciples and that he speaks and that he acts decisively, right? He's not someone who hesitates. He can be impetuously bold and he's even willing to go to battle for Jesus, albeit rather ineptly. But what strikes me most about Peter in this overview of his of this life, the overall impression that we get is that he has this incredible desire, a good desire to be the best of Jesus's disciples. He wants to be the first on every scene. He wants to be the one who does more than what is asked. He wants to do more than what the other disciples are willing to commit. And ironically, it is that desire to be the best disciple, to be the most committed disciple, that is his greatest weakness. Recall, for example, what happened last week. When the disciple whom Jesus loved pointed out Jesus on the shore when Peter didn't recognize him, Peter jumped into the water. Instead of helping out, with that enormous catch of fish and bringing the boat to shore with the other disciples, he has to get to Jesus first. He wants Jesus to see that he is willing to leave behind the other disciples. He's willing to leave behind the boat and the fish to be with Jesus first. Then once the other disciples come ashore and Jesus asks them to bring some of the fish which they have caught, 
before anyone can move, Peter is already on the boat and he alone is hauling that entire net filled with 153 fish. Jesus just wanted a few fish to grill. But Peter says, you can have it all. I'm going to give you all of it. Peter's identity, it seems to me, is rooted in his self-understanding as the most passionate, the most committed of Jesus' disciples. Now, I don't think that itself is a bad desire. Like once, when he recognized that Jesus is the Holy One of God, he was willing to die for him. So imagine how painful it must have been to have denied Jesus three times. Of course, it was shameful for all the disciples when they abandoned Jesus at the cross. And they all felt that guilt and shame. But it must have been especially crushing for Peter, whose entire identity has been uprooted now because he was so passionate, he was so committed, and he wanted so much for Jesus to know that he, among all the disciples, was the one that was going to stick by him no matter what. I think this is why he just went fishing in the first place. He's filled with guilt and shame. He's wondering if his denials and his failures have permanently disqualified him from following Jesus or even to be loved by him. So when Jesus appears behind those closed doors, Peter was silent. He's silent through the breakfast. I mean, usually he's a big talker, but he's silent because he's ashamed. I think his silence suggests to us that he's really struggling during this time. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, the Yale theologian Miroslav Volf interprets the story of Cain and Abel and says that Cain killed Abel because Cain saw himself in relation to his brother Abel and that he wanted and had to be better than Abel. So when God accepted Abel's offering instead of his, Cain was crushed because it meant that Abel had surpassed him in some way. And in that moment, Cain had two options. He could adjust his sense of self-understanding and accept that his brother had exceeded him at least for that moment. Or he could eliminate this challenge to his self-understanding and identity. And Wolf concludes that Cain murdered Abel not because he had a temporary uh, violent urge that got the best of him, but because his perverted sense of self could not permit a rival. Remember the parable Jesus told in Luke 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector? They both went to pray. And Jesus said that the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. He was praying to himself. I mean, he was addressing God, but really he was praying to himself. His identity is rooted in his own goodness. 
He considered himself better than those around him. Like Peter and Cain, he based his identity and his ability to be better or more faithful than those around him. I think those of you who are incredibly disciplined and accomplished, those of you who are in leadership, whether at church or at work, you're going to be particularly prone to this temptation. Maybe you wouldn't be as obnoxious about it as a Pharisee, but it's easy to fall into this trap of telling yourself that you are a little more deserving than those around you of God's love because in your heart of hearts, you think you're doing a little bit better. You're proud of the fact that while others might be languishing on Zoom, you're still thriving. It may feel like a small lie to think that I'm a little bit better, but it's actually an enormous rejection of God's grace. You're essentially telling God that God, you owe me. You owe me because I have been better. I have worked harder. My discipleship is superior to that one. And then it's not much of a leap from there to thinking that others who are suffering, those who have lost their jobs, those who are sick, are somehow deserving of their misfortune because they aren't trying as hard as you are. It seems to me that this sort of attitude, this thinking is behind, is the root of much of our racism, our sexism, our classism, and all other false foundations of identity. Whenever we are inclined to say or to think that I am better than those around me and therefore deserving of more, we have built on the wrong foundation. When we compare and compete in our discipleship, whenever we keep score, whenever we seek to keep others down so that we can stay up or climb higher, whenever we view others as somehow weak or evil because they happen to be something that we are not, whether white or black, Democrat or Republican, the top 1% or the homeless, we are building on sand. Do you see this? Peter's identity was not rooted in Jesus' unchanging, unconditional, immeasurably great love for him. Rather, it was built on the shifting sand of his own fluctuating love for Jesus. I'm not sure if this resonates with any of you, but this is something that I imagine most of you have struggled with, just as I have. I know that at times, I have not really been in love with Jesus, but rather, I was in love with my love for Jesus. Right? There's a huge difference. For me, it meant that I was in love with the fact that I could do my discipleship, that I became proud of my spirituality, that I was more disciplined than others. I became proud of the fact that I understood God's grace 
better than others. Without a hint of irony of, of how wrong that kind of thinking is. I became proud of my goodness that, that I prayed for someone in secret, just like Jesus told me. Now, there's nothing wrong with a committed discipleship, of course, or to feeling good about your ability to follow. But the danger is that it can cross over so easily into pride. Spiritual maturity and humility leads us to thankfulness and the enlarging of our empathy for others. But spiritual pride leads to despising the weaknesses of others, to condemn those who seem less committed than you are, to judge them as lazy and that you alone or that you are somehow just simply more committed. Maybe that's overstating it a bit, but I hope you see my point. This was Peter's problem. I said last week that for Asian moms, feeding you is a way of saying, I love you and I forgive you. I think that's what Jesus has done. Instead of directly confronting Peter for his failures, for his abandonment, for his cowardice, Jesus instead makes him breakfast. It's his indirect, incredibly gentle way of communicating his love and his forgiveness. Jesus knows how terrible Peter feels about what happened, and there is no need to yell at him. Isn't this true of our own relationships? I know that sometimes um, when one of my kids has done something wrong, my first reaction is to yell at them. But occasionally, I can gather myself and realize that they are feeling probably more terrible about what happened than I do. And in those moments, I can approach them with gentleness and look for ways to restore them rather than to punish them. Some of you uh, who did premarital counseling with me might remember that one of the things that I like to say is that it's okay to fight, but when you fight, don't get historical. It's okay to be hysterical, but don't get historical. You can get angry, but don't bring up all of the history of all the other times that your partner has failed you over the many, many years. Don't poke those wounds, those scars, again and again and again. It doesn't help. If you're having a conversation about it, it's likely they feel the weight of the shame and the guilt without you condemning them again and again. I think that's what Jesus is doing with Peter in this conversation. He knows that Peter is repentant. He has seen his silent shame on multiple occasions. So Jesus doesn't need to directly confront him. Instead, he asks him three times if he loves him so that Peter has three opportunities now to recommit himself to Jesus, to override the three times that he denied him. And notice that the first time Jesus asks him, do you love me more than these? 
It's not clear what Jesus is referring to with this, the these. But I think he's talking about these other disciples. Jesus, I think, here is getting at the root of Peter's core issue. Do you love me more than these other disciples? That had been Peter's problem. Is that what you think? Is that how you perceive yourself? And to those questions, Peter is able to respond that he does. And Jesus does not question that. He doesn't say, are you sure this time? Instead, Jesus tells him, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock, take care of the weakest and the most vulnerable members of my flock. He fully restores Peter to his original calling and mission. I believe this is Jesus' way of telling him that he does not need to compare himself to the other disciples, that he doesn't need to be the best, the most committed to be deserving of Christ's forgiveness and love. He doesn't need to do something extraordinary to work, to prove himself. Jesus says simply, just feed my sheep. Just love my people and forgive them just as I have loved you and forgiven you. Feed my flock. That's the way you can follow me. At this point, it would have been great if Peter had just said, yes, Lord, the end. But that's not how it ends. Peter's old nature is not so completely and easily transformed or eliminated. His old insecurity sneaks up one more time with this question. He sees the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was faster than him and got to the tomb first, the one who recognized Jesus on the shore before he did, the one with the better nickname, the one whom Jesus loved. I want to be better than that guy. That guy's there. And he's following them. And Peter asks Jesus, what about him? He can't let go of comparing and trying to be better than the other disciples. Even now, he wants to know how his discipleship compares with that of the others. And Jesus tells him once more, it doesn't matter what he's doing. You Follow me. You follow me. Build your life around my love for you, not in comparison to those around you. That's the word for each of us. Jesus says, you follow me. You follow me. You have a lot of people around you and in your life. They are not your competition in discipleship. They are people who are walking alongside with you. And some of them need for you to feed them, to tend to their needs, to be forgiven, to be served breakfast. I don't know about you, but that's a word I really need 
to hear these days. I see a lot of people in my life these days saying and doing all kinds of things that I cannot understand. There are days when I lose hope and patience and I just want to scream in their faces. That's when I realize, just like Peter, I think I'm a little better disciple than they are. That I know God a little better than they do. That my understanding of God is a little more accurate, a little more true than the way that they are perceiving him. And Jesus tells me again and again and again and again, gently, no, you're not. You follow me. You feed my sheep. Jesus is confident that I have not all the answers. He is confident that I'm not always right. And Jesus is also confident that I'm capable of feeding his sheep and following him. And so that's what I have to do. That's what we all have to do. We have to follow him. You follow me. This is what it is to encounter the risen Lord. It is to know that you are loved and forgiven. It is to know that you are being restored to wholeness and to the community of faith. And it's in that security we are invited to discipleship, to follow Jesus Christ, and to invite others to him. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. 